Well, how many of you have heard this phrase before? Sometimes the truth hurts. Have you heard that before? Sometimes the truth hurts. And if you've never actually heard the phrase, I'm sure that you've experienced something like it and you can anticipate what it means. If someone has ever pointed out one of your flaws or one of your shortcomings, you know that it hurts. There's a special kind of pain that comes from honest critique. I remember several years ago, I started seeing a personal trainer at the gym, and I learned that the truth can hurt. I, on my first session, he, he worked me out so hard that I thought I was going to pass out. Uh, I got lightheaded, I had to sit down, I had to drink some water and take a break, and then when I got back to the guy, I said, I don't know, maybe I just didn't have enough to eat today, maybe my blood sugar just kind of got low, and he looked at me and said, maybe you're just out of shape. Ouch. The, the truth can hurt, but as hard as, hard as it is, we need to hear the truth in order for us to grow. Mark Twain has a saying, truth hurts, but silence kills. It's crucial for us to hear the truth, especially in the realm of sin and salvation. When eternal life is at stake, we must hear the truth. And thankfully, Jesus teaches us the truth. He loves us enough to tell us the things that we need to hear, even if sometimes it's a little bit painful. And in John chapter 4, our text for this morning, Jesus has three conversations, three important conversations where he communicates a loving critique with the goal of inspiring faith. And his critique applies to us. The things that he has to say to these people in the text apply to us. He's telling us the truth about us so that we would believe in him. Because when we believe in him, we experience abundant life and abundant growth. And so my invitation and challenge for you this morning is to lean into this text and accept Jesus' probing message as he tells us the truth about ourselves so that you can turn to him in faith and believe in him so that you too can experience Christ's benefits this morning. So brothers and sisters, please join me in God's holy word as we read John chapter 4 in its entirety. Uh, it begins on page 888 if you're joining us in the Black Pew Bibles. Um, and if for some reason you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one home and, uh, and continue to read it at home. Continue to read through the book of John uh, as we study it together. So again, on 888 John chapter 4, brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us this morning. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They then said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So again, he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Thus far, brothers and sisters, in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for your word to us, and we ask that now you would speak to us through it. Help us to hear uh, a message of truth that is ultimately a message of life, and through your spirit, cause all of us here who hear this message and this truth, cause all of us to believe I pray for every single individual here uh, that everyone would have saving faith in Christ as they hear your word of life. Uh, convert us, change us, transform us, give us great abundance in Christ. Even now, let us hear your voice. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So let's jump into this story. Jesus, at the beginning of the story, is ministering in the south, near Jerusalem. And he hears that there's increasing scrutiny on his ministry from the religious leaders, and so he decides to leave the south and go north. In order to get there, the shortest route is through Samaria, like we heard about in our text. That's the shortest route from south to north. And as you heard in the text, there's tremendous tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so most Jews would take that short route and they would just walk quickly through with the urgency of getting out of town as quickly as possible. But Jesus has a different kind of urgency here. The text says in verse 4 that he had to go through Samaria, not just because it was the shortest route, but because he had this burden of a divine mission that he wanted to accomplish. Every other time that John uses 
that word uh, that's translated in our text, had, that he had to go through Samaria, every other time in the book of John, it comes with this salvific necessity that usually is translated must. You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross. He must rise again from the dead. And so here, Jesus must go through Samaria. He has a message of urgency, of salvation. The people are in danger. They needed to hear the truth. And so Jesus tells the truth. He very purposefully engages the woman, the disciples, and the official to tell them the truth. And first, he tells them a very hard truth, a truth that they needed to hear about themselves. He says, you are consumed with the wrong thirst, and you are consumed with the wrong hunger. At the well, Jesus and the woman are having a conversation about true thirst, and it's clear that they are not talking about the same thing. When he offers her springs of living water that will never leave her thirsty, she is thinking about how hot it is at noon when she's coming by herself to come to this well, and how nice it would be to not have to come anymore to this deep, deep well to try and draw up another jar full of water. She is thinking about physical thirst, but Jesus is talking about spiritual thirst. And so he presses the matter home to make his message abundantly clear. He says, yes, I'll give you this water. Go and bring your husband and then come back here. And that she must have been horrified uh, because she didn't currently have a husband, but like we hear in the text, she had had five husbands previously and was now sleeping with a man who was not her husband. So Jesus touches on the deepest area of shame in her life to bring her deep spiritual thirst into the light. It's like Jesus is saying, stop focusing on your physical thirst when your spiritual thirst is killing you. You, dear woman, are spiritually parched. He says a similar thing to the disciples. They come back with food and they are stunned to see him speaking with a Samaritan woman. He is breaking all kinds of social taboos here. Now, they don't say anything, but the text kind of makes it clear that that something's going on in their hearts. And Jesus, we know, Jesus knows everything that's going on in their hearts. He sees what's going on. The disciples are shocked because they see this woman as a social problem for Jesus. And so when they offer him food, they're urging him to eat. Jesus says, I have more nourishing food than this. I am sustained by doing and accomplishing God's will. See, Jesus was hungry for God's global mission of salvation. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was sent to the world because God loved the world. He was sent to die for God so loved the world. And as we hear in verse 42, he is the Savior of the world. All nations, even the Samaritans, even this morally compromised Samaritan woman, Jesus, is hungry for that mission. But for the disciples, 
this town, these people that they were with were only good for getting some food and then leaving as quickly as possible. They didn't care about God's plan. They were consumed with the wrong kind of hunger. And this is the hard truth about us. We, friends, we are consumed with the wrong kind of thirst and the wrong kind of hunger. We want Jesus to meet our physical desires. We get angry at God when our spiritual needs conflict with our physical desires, or when God withholds physical satisfaction from us, perhaps to draw us closer to himself. We grumble at God when he withholds physical good from us. And that is exactly why Jesus rebukes the official in verse 48. Those used are plural. So Jesus is basically saying to this one man, you people will never believe unless y'all see signs and wonders. It's a rebuke meant for every single listener. Stop treating God like a vending machine. That is how the people of Galilee had been treating him. They received him gladly, the text says, because they had seen signs and wonders from him in Jerusalem, and they wanted more. We come to God, God, the great fountain of life and light and love, and we treat him like a fountain drink dispenser at 7-Eleven, as if his goal, his purpose, is to be there for us to just gush endless ounces of empty calories to try and satisfy our never-ending thirst for pleasure. So we are obsessed with the wrong things. Of course, this doesn't mean that God doesn't care about physical things like food or water. Of course, he is greatly concerned about our physical well-being. You might think of Psalm 3410, right? The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The God who provides all things for us, he wants us to keep our priorities lined up. He wants us to cherish him above everything else that he gives to us. He wants us to have the mentality of Psalm 63.3, your love is better than life. And let's put this in context. If Jesus is willing to point out our unhealthy, sinful obsession with physical thirst and hunger in an arid, dry place at high noon, where those are actually some pretty valid concerns... What do you think that Jesus would tell us today with our air-conditioned homes, our clean water on tap at at will, our well-stocked fridges? We live in a culture of absolute abundance, but our absolute abundance has only made us more hungry. Just spend some time on the internet. Spend some time on a a website like Reddit or Instagram, and, and you'll see that almost every other post is someone showing off one of their possessions or someone debating what possession they're going to buy next. And in between those posts about possessions, you'll likely just hear a lot of grumbling and complaining about how life is miserable. So it, it is one black hole of desire out there, friends. Our culture just invites us to follow in and just pour ourselves in in this pursuit to find happiness and it never satisfies us because underneath all of our physical craving is this deep religious impulse 
Every single one of us has this deep desire to know God and to serve God, for us to have meaning and to have purpose, and our materialism cannot give it. And so we are wasting our time endlessly pursuing pleasure from this world, and Jesus calls us out on it. He says that you are obsessed with the wrong things. That is the truth about us. But then Jesus, thankfully, mercifully goes on to tell us the truth about himself. He can quench our spiritual thirst. He can satisfy our spiritual hunger. Verse 23, Jesus gives us access to the Father so that we, from every tribe and tongue and nation, can worship God and delight in him no matter where we are. Verse 14, Jesus fills us with the Holy Spirit, the living water, the moving, bubbling water that he's talking about here is a reference to the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, nourishing our faith. Uh, giving us uh, bubbling joy within us. Verse 38, Jesus gives us purpose. He sends us out on God's mission, which is profoundly satisfying as we share the good news about Jesus with other people. And so that's the truth, friends. This is the truth from our text. We spend way too much energy trying to fulfill our physical desires when our spiritual needs are the ones that matter most. But wonderfully, Jesus can fulfill those deep, our very deepest spiritual needs. So Jesus tells us the truth. And when we hear the truth, we need to respond, right? I'm sure my personal trainer didn't just tell me that I was out of shape to simply hurt my feelings. He, he wanted me to, to, to grow. He told me I was out of shape to spur me into action, and it's the same thing here in our text with Jesus. He tells us the truth to motivate belief. That's the goal of this text. Jesus wants us to believe. He calls us to believe. He tells the Samaritan woman, ask me for eternal life, and I'll give it to you. He tells the disciples, I have food for you that is more nourishing than the food that you have in your hands. I have a mission for you that is the most fulfilling thing you can spend yourself on. And he tells the official, I am so much more than just a miracle worker. I am God's Messiah. So everywhere he goes, every interaction that Jesus has in this text, it's a call. Jesus calls us to believe that he is the Son of God, who alone gives us access to the Father. Jesus calls us to believe that he sends his Holy Spirit into us to give believers abundant life, both now and forever. Remember, eternal life is this thing that we can have now. It's not just a future thing. It's joy in the present. And Jesus calls us to believe that his messianic mission is the most valuable, the most meaningful cause that we can give ourselves to. Jesus calls us to believe. So why don't we? Why don't we believe? I think we're afraid to admit that he's right. See, if, if he's right about who he is, and if he's right about who we are, then we're going to need to change. And change is hard. Change is scary. If Jesus is right about who he is and Jesus is right about who we are, then we need to admit that we are sinful. 
We need to admit that we are broken people with broken desires, and that is hard to do. If we look at the Samaritan woman, she doesn't want to do that. Look at just look at verses 16 through 20. She avoids telling the truth to Jesus. And then when Jesus names her sin, she changes the subject. She brings up a theological topic. She brings up a dispute between Samaritans and Jews about the proper place to worship God. She avoids telling the truth about herself. And we do the same thing. We avoid admitting our own sin at all costs. And then, when we're called out on it, we tend to change the subject. We usually invoke God. We'll often point to the Bible, and we'll try to manipulate the scriptures to say something like, look, God doesn't explicitly say, I can't do that. It's a matter of interpretation. The text isn't really talking about this thing over here. I am free in Christ, after all. We are so eager to justify ourselves, to justify our behavior. But if Jesus is right, then we need to confess our sins. It's the first thing we should do. We also need to confess that we have disordered priorities, that we have this unhealthy, sinful attachment to worldly things over spiritual things. And that's really the whole business about the signs in verses 43 through 48. The people of Galilee, his rebuke of this official. See, as as we'll see throughout the book of John, whenever people approach Jesus, almost constantly, they only want the spiritual things that he has to offer them. They only want the the physical things uh, that Jesus has to offer them, the physical goods of food or water or health. And so uh, Jesus calls that out. And if he's right... We need to admit that we, too, are no different. We would much rather have a healthy, happy child than to be reconciled to God. We think that the health of our kids is is more important than uh, our own particular relationship with God or their relationship with God. Uh, We would far, far be happier uh, to have a well-stocked Christmas or birthday list with physical things than to receive from Christ the amazing spiritual blessings that he has for us. But if Jesus is right, then we need to admit our thirst for worldly pleasures, and then we need to give that up, because Jesus is calling us to a a different way of life, to find our pleasure, our happiness, and our fulfillment in him. And then finally, I think we need to admit that if Jesus is right about himself and if he's right about us, we need to admit that our biases often get in the way of us doing God's mission. The disciples, as we read them in the text, they were trapped by their own cultural biases. As a whole, the Jewish community looked down on Samaritans, they looked down on women, and they especially looked down on Samaritan women. Not too long after Jesus' life, the Jewish spiritual leaders will enact a law declaring that every Samaritan woman is perpetually unclean. That means you had to avoid them. They were unworthy of being pursued, unworthy of being taught the truth about God. But that is not God's point of view. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He wanted to pursue this woman so that he could offer her eternal life. He invites her to worship God in spirit and truth. He says that God seeks worshipers like this, 
Like the, the person that he is inviting her to become. God wanted her. God valued her. Jesus was not captured by cultural bias, but we are. Every single one of us tempted toward preferential or exclusionary behavior. And it's any number of things. It might be race. It might be gender. It might be class. It might be moral lifestyle or political leanings or even just personal preference. But whatever it is, it's very common for every single one of us to see somebody and instead of dreaming about what it might be for this person to be saved and to come into the kingdom, we'll say something like, well, I don't really know if they can be in God's family. I can't envision them being in God's family. And if they can be in God's family, I'm not so sure that they would fit in with us our family. Uh, Maybe it'd be better if uh, if someone else did this work. And that mentality hinders us uh, from going on God's global mission of salvation. And we need to admit it whenever it crops up in our lives. I think these are the reasons, these are at least a few of the reasons that we don't fully believe in Jesus. We don't fully give ourselves over to him. We're afraid to admit that Jesus is right. But let's just assume for a moment that Jesus is right. Yes, it would mean that we need to change. But it's a change from thirst and starvation into an abundance of life. Just think about all of the movie scenes. I'm sure we all have them in our memory. Think about the movie scenes or the TV show scenes. Or just imagine uh, this, this person trudging through a desert, right? They're alone, the sun is baking down on them, the the heat is kind of rising up from the sand, their shoulders are slumped, they're trudging towards death, and then, miraculous, they, they see an oasis with water. What does this person do who is trudging towards death? Well, they immediately shake off their death, they run to the oasis, they plunge themselves in the water, they splash cool water everywhere, they drink so deeply that their thirst is finally quenched, and they are laughing the entire time. They cannot believe their good fortune to have stumbled upon life in the middle of this tremendous place of death. And so, yes, you'll need to change. You'll need to change. But why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you run to Jesus? Why wouldn't you plunge yourself into the living waters that Christ is offering you today? Because Jesus brings you life. It would be foolish to ignore or dismiss or refuse Jesus. This morning, Jesus offers you life. And so throw off your old ways that led to death and believe in him because Jesus gives you life. Our story in John chapter 4 ends with a healing. The official's son lives. This is a sign, John says, a sign showing Jesus' messianic mission to resurrect all of us from spiritual life or spiritual death into spiritual life. See, when people believe, Jesus gives them life. And here's what this life looks like. In Jesus, when we receive this life from Jesus, we have new freedom. We're freed from shame. We don't need to hide our sin anymore. We can tell the truth. 
and we can trust in Christ. That is freedom. I was recently reading to the kids a Magic Treehouse book. Um, has any, anyone read a Magic Treehouse book or two or three? If you haven't read one, the basic premise is that there are these two kids who go into this magic treehouse and they get magically transported to a different time and a different place to do some sort of mission. And because they are magically transported to this very different time, very different place, they actually have to lie a lot. The kids in the story are constantly lying about who they are and where they come from because people won't accept their answers. But in the story that I was reading to my kids, I was really struck by this. The two kids enter this magical realm of penguins, uh, and in this realm of penguins, they meet the emperor penguin, and magically they can communicate to the emperor penguin, and the penguin asks, why are you here, and where did you come from? And for the first time in the book, they tell the truth. And here's what it says. It describes it like this. It felt natural to tell the emperor and his tribe the truth. It felt natural to tell the truth because they knew that they wouldn't be rejected. That is freedom. That is the freedom that we have when we are forgiven by Jesus. It becomes natural for us to tell the truth. We are free. And we see that freedom here in our text. This woman who is likely socially ostracized from her culture because of her own sexual history, she proudly, urgently goes into the middle of the town and says, come, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. I don't know about you, but I would find that almost terrifying to meet someone who could tell me everything I ever did. Do you actually want to meet someone on the street who knows your deepest, darkest secret? In general, no. We try to keep those things to ourselves. We try to hide them because we don't really want anybody else to know. But when we know that with Jesus, Jesus knows us, but he also accepts us. We are fully known in Christ, but we are fully accepted. And so it is a joy to run to Jesus and to admit, you know everything about me, and I can still be in your presence without shame. I can still enjoy the presence of Christ without being ashamed of everything that I have ever done. Jesus loves you so much. You are free to tell the truth. You're free to tell the truth about yourself, and you can freely confess your sins. That's the freedom we have in Christ. Also, we are free to fully trust in Christ, and that he is more than adequate to do the right thing and to give us what we really need. We can freely place challenging situations in his hands and trust that he will do the right thing, just like this official from Capernaum does. At the end of our text, his son is dying. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. And the man does. He accepts that Jesus will do the right thing. He believes Jesus. That is freedom. That's the freedom that we have when we trust in Jesus, when we believe that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. So the new life that Christ gives us is characterized by new freedom. And then when we have that new freedom, then we find a new satisfaction. Our 
dusty and dry souls are renewed as the Holy Spirit rushes in to fill us with life-giving water. It is a wonderful thing for us to find contentment in Christ, especially in a culture that is overstuffed and under-satisfied. See, we do not need to engage in this perpetual race to find newer and bigger and better. We get to rest in Christ. Because in Christ, we have everything that we could ever need, ever hope for. And that new satisfaction then leads to a new appetite. Jesus gives us a new appetite. Once we taste the water of the Spirit and how amazing that is, then we hunger to now share it with others. The woman goes and she gets this whole village and many and then many more believe in Christ. The man has his son healed and then he and his whole household believe. John Calvin says it is the nature of faith that we want to bring others to share eternal life with us when we have become partakers of it. Our experience of freedom, our experience of satisfaction causes us to have compassion on those who are caught and locked in the exhaustion of shame and self-effort for self-satisfaction in a materialistic culture. And so before you know it, you are hungry for God's mission in this world. You are eager to share the gospel, share the good news of Christ with others. You eagerly pray for others to have new opportunities to tell people about Jesus. And then, when we operate out of this new appetite, we experience new strength. Jesus gives us new strength. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I love how D.A. Carson puts it. He says, if in his dealings with the Samaritan woman, Jesus was performing his father's will, there was greater sustenance in that than in any food the disciples could offer him. That is such good news because in your appetite for God's mission you will likely find yourself outside of your comfort zone you will likely find yourself stretched beyond your limits and you might wonder how am I going to do this how am I going to do this thing that God calls me to do Jesus gives you new strength for that Jesus gives you food that is more nourishing than the food that you have on your shelves. Jesus will sustain you with new strength when you do God's will, so that you too can go out in the harvest and gather fruit for eternal life. This new life that Christ gives to us is so important. That's why Jesus wants us to believe. He tells us the truth about ourselves so that we would believe, so that we can experience this new life. And this life is nothing short of transformative. And if you want a good picture of this transformed life that Jesus is offering you this morning, look no further than the Apostle John himself. John, who wrote this book, was one of these disciples. John was one of the ones who were dismayed to find Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman. John himself had no love for the Samaritans. In Luke chapter 9, a group of Samaritans rejects Jesus, and John asks for permission to call down fire from heaven to destroy them. John hated being disrespected. John was hungry for earthly glory. He wanted a privileged spot in Jesus' kingdom. But Jesus transformed him. In Jesus, 
John had new life. And that new life, he had new freedom, new satisfaction, a new appetite, and a new strength. And we can see that transformed life in the text. The one who hated Samaritans and wanted to destroy them now exalts a Samaritan woman as the ideal evangelist. And he dignifies this group of Samaritans as the ideal people who responded to Jesus. They had ideal faith, unlike his own Jewish people who only kept looking for signs. They had exemplary faith. John experienced new life in Christ, and he was transformed. Formerly, he was a son of thunder with a raging temper, a raging thirst, lust for glory. But now we know of him. Church history knows of him as the apostle of love because he is so happy to talk about God's love for sinners. It's a transformed life. It's a wonderful testimony, and that testimony can be yours. Listen to Jesus. He tells you the truth. He tells you the truth about yourself, and he tells you the truth about himself, and then believe in him and experience new life. Let everyone here who thirsts come to Jesus. Drink deeply of him and thirst no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truth that in Christ we can have our deep thirst quenched. We can have new hunger that is more fulfilling than the hungers that we, uh, that we pursue. And that you will fulfill us with food that is more nourishing and satisfying than anything we can find at the store. Lord, we repent. We confess our sins. We are a sinful, broken people consumed with uh, worldly obsessions and deeply impacted by cultural biases. Lord, would you strip us of these things so that we can more fully trust in Christ and give ourselves to him and give ourselves to your mission. Save us, O oh God, and give us this life-giving water even now, we pray. In the name of Christ.